Welcome to It's No Fluke, a weekly podcast about the untold stories and uncharted waters in culture and creativity. I'm your host, Jeff Barrett, Shorty Award winner and Real Time Academy member. Each season, we'll explore a range of topics with the current and next big names in digital storytelling, featuring diverse voices from creators, brands, and great minds of our time. Today is Tiffany Bova, a global growth evangelist at Salesforce best-selling author of the new book, The Experience Mindset, Changing the Way You Think About Growth. She's one of the most sought-after speakers in the world, giving over 750 keynotes in six different continents. This episode is all gas, no breaks. We dig into why employee experiences become collateral damage in improving customer experience and user convenience. And we talk about the right questions to ask to lead people to the right changes. Let's go. This season, we're proud to partner with Wave. Do you know seven out of 10 creators don't have enough money set aside for a financial crisis? It's super important to have the right tools and insights to stay in control. And let's be honest, most of us did not become money managers. So let the experts do the work. Wave is affordable, one-stop money management for creators. It streamlines invoicing, payments, payroll, all in one place, keeping you in complete control. Plus, Wave is offering a free personal 20-minute session with one of their bookkeeping coaches when you create a free account. A normally $99 cost, Wave wants to make expert advice accessible for creators and take the fear and intimidation out of bookkeeping taxes. Spots are limited, so don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash nofluke to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Thanks for joining me, Tiffany. You went down a road of discovering things about people and culture. Um, what did you learn that you didn't know? Um, what did you learn that kind of confirmed some um, hypotheses? Well, it has been an interesting journey to say the least. Look, I spent a decade uh, of my career um, prior to joining Salesforce as a research fellow at Gartner. And my area of coverage was sales transformation, go-to-market model transformation, right? The way in which brands would take products and services to market, how to make that really effective and efficient. And it landed me uh, in a space where I figured I needed to write a book about it. So my first book, Growth IQ, was born and it was 10 Paths to Growth. And the very first path was customer experience. It was sort of, you know, customers are your true north, live and die on the hill of your customer, right? Like they, you know, they are the ones that that you are in business to serve. And I sort of mentioned employee a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And now fast forward, and I realized what a disservice I had done, that I really missed employee in those 10 paths to growth. And experience mindset is sort of my way of, uh, making up for that. It's kind of the unspoken 11th path, if you will. Uh, sure. And it, and it really highlighted that employees are the keepers of companies' brand promises around like things like customer experience, or we're going to develop the best products in the world. Well, who does that? <laughs> employees, right? We're going to deliver the best customer service experience. Okay, well, who does that? employees. And you might argue, well, it's automated now. Yeah, but employees are writing the scripts, right? Employees are, you know, building the products, they're making the FAQs, they're designing the packaging. Like it doesn't necessarily need a human 
um, in that moment with a customer. But that kind of insight really was eye-opening for me and really highlighted some blind spots that I had had along the way of that connection between the employee and the customer that, that the businesses are serving. So yeah, so it kind of came about during research. Um, what did you get right with Growth IQ? Um, I think that Growth IQ is still very relevant. I tried to write a book that was evergreen. And so those 10 paths sort of aren't going to change because in all truth, those 10 paths were nothing new. Right. I, you know, I just modernized growth strategies companies have been using for 50, 60, 70 years, if not longer, mm -hmm. with the advent of social, mobile, cloud, big data, you know, mobile, all the things that have come about that have allowed the ability for a company, like one of the examples in the book was Kylie Jenner. And regardless of what you think of the family or Kylie or whatever, don't care. Like at the end of the day, it was 12 employees that built a $500 million business. Okay. You mm -hmm. could argue, I don't believe it was 500 million. I believe it was 200 million. Okay. 12 people built a $200 million business. Like there's less than 7% of companies across the U.S that are larger than $5 million. Okay. So it yeah. is a very small percentage that gets that big talk when you get to 200 million or 300 million, but there's no way she could have done it in the past 50 years ago with 12 people. It would have been R and D manufacturing, supply chain, warehouses, trucks, all the things, the infrastructure that businesses would have on their own to do that now could be done very differently. And so you see that happening, whether it's an Instagram, whether it's a WhatsApp, right? It's a handful of employees that get sold for billions of dollars. And so those kinds of advancements, I think, stay true now. Now, what's going to be next? Look, now we're dealing with AI. How will that change and accelerate the way brands are able to market, connect and communicate with customers? Like that will change one more time. But I, I don't think I would change anything. I might just update the stories I use uh, in the book. Um, but yeah. I think it was a great uh, springboard to, to the work that I've done over the last couple of years now. Well, that's my general takeaway. And in a couple previous conversations of the podcast, we talked about the half-life of technology just getting faster and faster and faster. But the principles of how people connect and how things work generally stay the same, right? So you adapt them. And when you were talking, AI was popping in the back of my head because when you start getting into uh, prompt managers and people who are actually plugging in what that AI is going to do, that still is a person, right? That it still is an employee who is directing where that end path will go. So it is interesting to talk about technology and people. Where do you see culture fitting and how much attention will organizations put into culture going forward? So in the early 1960s, a, a business management ex expert um, by the name of Harold Levitt created this Levitt's Diamond uh, model, which was people process technology. And so people mm -hmm. called PPT. And it's, you know, sort of shown the test of time, proven the test of time, right? People still use it today. It's kind of like what I was saying around growth IQ. I took the Ansoff matrix um, and I modernized that, right? It was four of the 10 growth paths. So I am a, if you will, an anthropologist of sort of business <laughs> practices, because what's ever old is always new again. Um, we think yes. it's a new idea, but it is not. It's just technology changes the solution by which the job can be done. But I liked Levitt's diamond model, but I felt like culture 
was becoming even more important. And so I wanted to separate people and culture. So I expanded that PPT to include PPTC for culture. And so I actually have one chapter uh, on each of those um, in the book. And culture is one of those levers that happy employees lead to happy customers. And mm -hmm. it came from a statement I made on stage. I didn't think it was a coincidence that Salesforce is a great place to work pretty much globally. If it's not number one, it's in the top five. It's one of the most innovative companies in the world, and it's the fastest growing enterprise software company. When I said that on stage was sort of the beginning of this experience mindset journey. I went back to our CMO at the time and I said, hey, I want to prove this because if we have really happy employees, is that driving that innovative culture? If yeah. we have this innovative culture, this customer success culture, if we have this Ohana culture, which is really what our CEO, Mark Benioff, Ohana means family in Hawaiian, that mm -hmm. if you, if, and I'm from Hawaii, so, you know, works out well for me, um, that, <laughs> that if, uh, um, if you have that kind of culture where everyone's showing up with each, for each other, they're collaborating, there's more diversity of thought, there's ideas can come from anywhere, it's very transparent, all the buzzwords um, that get used, that culture of ours um, is defensible. And so when people say, what makes Salesforce special? One of the first things out of my mouth would be culture, right? So if that is the case and you are trying to build an organization or build a business that is innovative, that's resilient, that's responsive, um, that puts out the best products and services, that serves your customers, culture is at the center of that. Then off of that is the people, right? The people that make up that culture. If you have a toxic team or a toxic leader, it can permeate the organization. And you hear it all the time where, oh, this culture was toxic and people started leaving. And that's why it's hard to recruit and retain talent because nobody wants to work there. That isn't necessarily a product problem, right? That's a culture problem. Uh, so that's why I decided to break up culture and people. No, and it's a, it's a great point too. I mean, there literally is a cost to having a bad culture, right? The, interesting enough, we've gone through a great resignation. We've gone through what is essentially a mild pullback in employees from a lot of places. Do you think culture gets sacrificed in some organizations first when the bottom line is kept in mind? I don't know if that's the case, but I would say the growth at all costs culture has ramifications, right? And yeah. at all costs, if, you know, in air quotes, growth at all costs <laughs> in air quotes is sort of like, you know, get stuff out the door that's min minimally viable, right? Learn and test and fail and iterate that kind of growth at all costs. It may be thinner margins, right? Because you may be throwing more people at something until systems and tools and technology can start to automate. So your profit margins may be thinner and over time you're trying to grow. You could be in the Amazon model where we're just not going to be profitable for 15 years and hang on, right? That you've got enough revenue and you could make it work. Well, we all know there aren't many companies that can do that, but some right. have tried. You know, you may spend more to acquire customers early on. So profit is low. If your CAC is higher, there's all kinds of ways in which growth at all costs, costs being hard costs, but growth at all costs on a burnout schedule, right? You're just, it's seven days a week, 24 seven. Um, you know, we used to have 1500 people. We have 300 people doing the work of 1500 people. Like that kind of growth of all at all costs is awful for the culture, right? For the well-being of your people. And so then you have a great resignation, quiet quitting problem. Yep. But I would, but I would, I would take it a little bit 
differently as well that I think that the, at least in what I found through working on the book, I believe the great resignation was the result of us paying too much attention to the customer and Mm -hmm. forgetting about the employee. So I've been in the thick of this customer experience sort of drumbeat for a long time. And it was a big pivot to go from product-led to customer-led. And then it was, if you're going to go from product-led to customer-led, we need to have somebody who's focused on customer. Okay, then the chief marketing officer is going to start to drive customer experience. They're going to start spending money on technology. Billions of dollars has been spent on journey mapping the customer and uncovering what the customer needs and net promoter scores and all the things we know. So Mm -hmm. we've spent all this money reducing the effort of a customer to do business with us. So i.e., when I stood up of one of my very first e-commerce websites in the year 2000, which was 23 years ago, my mm-hmm. first domain name I bought was in 1996. So as I said, I've been, been doing this for a minute that we were go from 10 clicks from someone to buy to get it to three clicks, right? And now it's a one click buy. That was all about reducing effort for a customer being able to find what they need and purchase it quickly right? Because you lose their attention or you have abandonment in a cart, uh, you know, an online shopping cart, which is a big focus of, of lots of organizations. Yet at the I am, a, time- I'm, by the way, I'm a huge, uh, like pain in the butt of a lot of retailers. Cause I have just random things sitting in carts because I'm slightly indecisive and I'll pull the trigger at one in the morning. But you know, that cart abandonment is a big problem. And some of it is not indecisiveness. Some of it is just like, what a hassle. Like, oh, they don't take this credit card. You know, they don't take, I can only pay with this, you know, online. I can only do this. Like all of a sudden we make it really easy and then boom, we give them a hurdle at the last minute and then they sort of don't Mm want to, don't want to do it. Um, But simultaneously, as we were working to reduce the effort for the customer, the work on the employee side, the effort on the employee side actually went up. So in many cases, early in the e-commerce days, even though we were driving down clicks in the back end, it was humans running around (laughs) making everything happen, you know, taking it from the system, putting it in an Excel spreadsheet and then putting it in the ERP system and then putting it in the billing system. You know what I mean? Like we were, there was people running around the back end, although the customer felt like, wow, that was a really seamless and easy experience. The employees are like pulling their hair out, right? And so- The great resignation was this sort of reckoning of you cannot keep improving for one at the expense of the other, i.e. improving for customer at the expense of the employee. Yeah, that was the unintended consequence, right? I I think there are a lot of misconceptions that that gets blamed on a pandemic and work from home and burnout there. And don't get me wrong, that might have accelerated it a bit, but that was coming one way or the other because of the factors that you laid out. Do you think now that we're kind of pivoting, and this is not true for all businesses, by the way, but we're slightly pivoting from a user acquisition era in some places to a show profitability era. Does that change how culture needs to be or how an organization is run? Well, I'd say this. One of the things we found in the research, well, there's a couple of things, but one was nobody owns employee experience in an organization. So you've got someone who owns customer experience, but you don't have someone who owns employee experience. I was part of the team um, in my prior life back in 2008 at Gartner that made the prediction that the chief marketing officer would spend more on tech than the chief information officer. When we made Mm -hmm. that prediction, everyone thought we were crazy, but it wasn't about the tech. It was about what it would be used for. It was really about customer experience. 
Okay. And then we advocated for someone to own it, to have a seat at the C-suite. And it made sense for it to be the CMO. And then the CMO got a seat at the C-suite. They weren't now reporting to the COO or maybe the CFO, right? They were at the table. I am not advocating for that same thing to happen on the employee experience side. That's why I called it the experience mindset. This is a mindset shift organizationally, where if you are going to do something for the customer, take a beat and say, hold on, what is the intended or to, you know, parrot what you just said, Jeff, the unintended consequence of that change to the employee. Okay. So no one owns it. Then we're capturing data from the employee via surveys. We also found that more than three quarters of executives are capturing the data and don't know what to do with it. So they're capturing it, not doing anything with it. No one owns it. So here we are, right? Then the third one, which I think lends itself to what you were just saying about profitability, which is really around productivity with less people, right? To be more profitable Mm -hmm. and more productive is... It was about 53 or 54% of the C-suite felt that the technology they were using was working effectively in the organization. Only 32% of employees, all employees agreed with that statement. And only 20, 20% of customer facing employees agreed that technology was enabling them to do their job, making it easier to collaborate, right? And be more productive. Only 20% of customer facing. So if you're trying to be more profitable and you're telling your customer service agent to log into five tools to do their job or spend 20 minutes to do a return, you're never going to be more productive, which means it's very difficult to be more profitable because you'd have to throw more people at the problem versus getting the technology (laughs) right, which is why the PPTC, right? People process tech. Um, We do not have a technology problem. We have a people process problem because the processes are getting in the way. Um, the people aren't organized appropriately. The technology isn't supporting their ability to do their job. Yeah, we changed one thing rapidly and didn't address another thing. And that's kind of where you get that disconnect, right? Um, I don't think this conversation gets had a lot, right? On the on the culture side, right? I think there's more of a conversation, again, it's still usually on the consumer side, where people will say, well, you know, with this convenience economy where, you know, you could take an Uber, and you could get something from Grubhub and all of these things that came in the last five years, right? That made it really, really easy for the consumer. One click, all of, all of the shopping. All of these things may or may not sustain, right? I Look, Uber, Grubhub, those types of things, but not everyone will stick around. Like it, things can't be sustainably convenient for consumers forever, right? If, if a business doesn't turn a profit. Um, So the question mostly is, if those businesses change, does does the culture have to change in those kinds of businesses to make them successful, the the ones that are so reliant on user convenience? Well, I think user convenience is not going to go away anytime soon. And customers' expectations continuously rise with their last best experience. Right. So like I had a really good experience with, I'm just saying Grubhub, right. Or Uber or, Mm -hmm. or Amazon or Chewy or whomever, right. Whoever it is. And now I'm at my doctor's office or I'm at my insurance broker, or I'm trying to buy a car. And you very quickly notice that the experience is nowhere near like what you're getting on the other side. So for example, like 
on an Uber, I can see where the driver is. I can share where I am. Someone can track where I am. I can see what time am I going to be where I'm going. I can, you know, all of those things. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to my doctor's office and I don't know about y- you, but I, if I have an 11 a.m. appointment, it's like maybe 11.50. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, we're going to wh- whatever, right? Like, so my time isn't as valuable as your time. Actually, my time is equally valuable, if not more valuable, because it's my time, not your time, right? <laughs> and so, Amen. but I would love it if you could just send me a text and be like, the doctor is running late. So we're not going to no. be able to see you any earlier than 11.45. Do you want to reschedule? Yes, no. If no, we will keep you posted. We'll give you 15 minutes notice before it's time for him to, that you're going to be seen. So that I'm just not sitting there, right? I could be yeah. in my car taking calls. I could be, you know, at the coffee shop around the corner doing some work. You know, I could be at home if I'm close enough. Point is, we know that that can happen. I can see where my sandwich is. <laughs> like, why can't I, <laughs> why can't you communicate to me this way, Right. And so, or buying a car where buying a car feels like it did 25 years ago, you know, like, I mean, there are some brands, you know, like Tesla before they had a retail outlet, right. But you can't really buy there, but you get the point. Like they showed it can be very easy. Whereas when you go to a traditional car dealer and they've not been willing to sort of make that pivot yet, cars are so smart. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) right. Cars are smarter, right. So help, help a buyer out. So I think that I disagree that we're not going to be able to continue to improve that experience. I think there yeah. is a huge gap between the consumer experience and the business to business experience. I think there's mm. a big gap in highly regulated industries like banking and healthcare in being able to personalize like this. I think yeah. there is differences right between what are the products and services are being sold, but it goes back, you said, to the cultural aspect of you want to make sure that when people are designing the products and the systems, and even if you look at an Uber, who is the employee there within an Uber? It's the employees of Uber, but you could say mm-hmm. their extended you know, community includes the drivers. So the driver experience is extremely important. So you have the employee experience, the driver experience, and then the passenger experience. There's sort of three experiences that are equally important. Because if the driver doesn't have a good experience, they don't drive. Uber doesn't have drivers. If the driver isn't, you know, happy, the passenger doesn't have a good experience. If the passenger doesn't have a good, you know, get, you know, hail an Uber and pay for an Uber, I'm going to go to Lyft or I'm going to rent a car or I'm going to catch a taxi. So the constituents of quote unquote, who the employee is right for that experience is much broader. It... There are so many like little things I wanted to point out when you're doing that. You definitely nailed it with highly regulated industries because that is the disconnect, right? Whether it's HIPAA or if you're in banking, and I work with a lot of companies in these in these regards, there are just limitations to being able to be functional, right? So there's the there's a I think it's Jonah Hill's first movie when he's in um, Four Year Old Virgin and he's trying to buy something from an eBay store, and he's got these pair of like. Uh, glass heels with fish in them. And he's like, I would like to buy them. And she's like, oh yeah, just buy them on eBay. He's like, but I'm holding them in my hand. Can I just buy them now? And I think there are a lot of people that have that experience in those. And to be honest, yeah, plainly, those things might just not move at the same speed as other places. But luckily enough, like we kind of stumbled into how all of these experiences are related. 
that's mostly based on the quality of my guests, not the quality of my questions, thank God. But the, the idea is that really all of these things are connected. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in where the, the upcoming friction will be. Where do you anticipate friction? Because you, you very correctly anticipated we'd spend money on tech and marketing because we were, we're going after users. We're realizing that this is becoming more digital. This is becoming more targeted. And that was just the way to go with marketing. It wasn't about selling a Nike commercial or doing a big ad spot when you had the technology to find um, you know, what somebody does at 10.30 p.m. and where they're going to be most likely to click on something. So where do you see the next kind of friction? I think we have a long way to go in fixing the current friction before we start looking for more friction. <laughs> I mean, there is a good. Lot okay, of good. I don't want to overwhelm people. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I'd say this, nobody owning employee experience. Let me unpack that. So you're talking about friction. Yeah. And I want to be really clear here to, to your listeners that I am not an HR expert. I'm not a human capital expert. I'm not a culture expert. I am a sales, marketing, customer service, customer success, growth thinker. Like that's where I spend my time. So this mm -hmm. entire conversation about experience mindset is squarely at the intersection of when an employee touches a customer at that moment that matters. Not all things HR. So while things like comp, DE&I are all extremely important, it's not part of the conversation I'm having. So I don't want you to think I missed it and I only covered part of it. That was intentional. No, that's a good point. It's, it's just sort of not my area. So let me go back. So if we talk about system, people, process, tech, and culture, as it relates to those moments that matter, that if you think about an HR leader, so when I first launched this research, and by the way, it was like two years of research, global, um, C-suite employees, cross industry, all sizes, and what we found was that when you start talking about employee experience, it's not like, okay, how do I apply for time off or I get my healthcare benefits or sign up for 401k? Like those things, important, tend to be owned by HR. I'm talking about that call center agent that has to log into five tools, hasn't been mm. trained on the systems that they use um, in in. In a, uh, inability to actually do something because a process doesn't work or the sales rep right. actually has to, you know, do these three things before that. And so if you're focusing on process and tech and I ask an HR leader who owns employee experience, they came back and said to me, I own pieces of it, but the way you just described it, like what tools they're using, what training they get, what systems they have access to, how they're organized, who shares what data, who has the data, where is the data, who owns the data, all that kind of stuff. HR is like, not me, which now means we got to pull in IT. So then if I ask IT, who owns employee experience? They'll go, well, we deploy the tools that employees use, but I'm not necessarily looking at their satisfaction with those tools, which... I would say is a miss. Um, and then you may say, okay, well, who owns customer experience? Who's looking at the pieces of an employee experience that have the greatest impact on customer experience? Like the example I gave a few minutes ago, if it takes 20 minutes for a call center agent to do a return, mm -hmm. how happy do you think your employees are? You think they wake up every day and go, my God, I can't wait to do 10 returns today because that's going to waste my whole day. Like yep. no fun, no joy. 
no challenge, no creativity, no curiosity, just please automate that. <laughs> like, I don't care if you take it off my plate, right? I just don't want to do it anymore. And so then you'd say, okay, well, who has, who has the um, effort, if you will, for looking at those three things I just said? Well, it would include HR, because they may have learning and development. It would be IT, because they have the systems and tools and integration and collaboration. And why do I have to log in five times? Can you just not share the data between the systems? And then you have uh, the CX leader, right, or within marketing. That is the sort of three-legged stool. But the fourth one I would add is whoever's responsible for revenue, right? Because sales has a lot of unnecessary processes as well. So now that's mm -hmm. not a leader, right? Because those leaders are not going to go, yeah, sure, take this off my plate. It's not going to happen, right? So it really right. is the mindset of those four to say, hold on, like, are we doing things for our employees? So for example, if you're tracking net promoter score, are you tracking ENPS or employee net promoter score? If you're tracking customer effort score, are you tracking employee effort score? If you're tracking customer satisfaction, are you tracking employee satisfaction, but not like, are you happy working here? <laughs> like, would you refer your friends? I mean, you just did that 20 minute return. Were you happy yeah. with the tools to do it? Were you happy with the process? I'm going to guarantee you on a scale of one to five, five being amazing, zero would be a better choice, right? Mm -hmm. So is anyone doing that? And that's what I mean by, I think we've got a lot of friction to work through now because we've been spending decades fixing the friction on the customer side and we've made the friction on the employee side, um, once again, almost worse, which is why we're in the situation we're in. Yeah, you very well described dissatisfaction by a thousand cuts, right? It's just over time, it's gradual, and even the best uh, best trained, most well-intentioned employees in that atmosphere are going to become dissatisfied, right? Yeah. And if you have dissatisfied employees and Jeff calls up and he's like, I have this problem. And the employee's mm -hmm. like, yeah, get in line, buddy. I've heard it like 22 times today. Hold on. Let me do the same seven things I've done 22 times today. And let me stand up from my desk and let me escalate you to someone else. Let me open up, you know, another whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's no joy in what they're doing. How happy are they? And then by yeah. the way, a lot of times, and I know I'm focusing in on the call center because that is one where most of your listeners will have had a terrible experience with a call center agent. So I it's most universal. Yeah. And I literally yeah. just had that yesterday. And, and actually they were, they were really pleasant. And we did like an hour with five different places and they were all like, I wish I could do something more. Right. So that's not a great experience, right? For either. Yeah. And so, you no know, it, it, it is incumbent upon leaders. And if you're listening to this and running a call center or have any influence or sway over it, sit in the call center for a couple of hours, listen in on, um, you know, what is happening in that call center how difficult it is it for that call center agent to do what you expect them to do and look for ways to drive out the mundane. You know, don't be afraid. This isn't about reducing the headcount in your call center. This is about having your call center deal with the most complex situations with customers and leave the things that are very transactional to the technology, to AI, to bots, to FAQs, right? To automation uh, and then allow uh, that kind of level of service that your your 
customer service agents can give your customers to exponentially improve. And then people are like, I don't actually mind calling that call center. They're always helpful. They're responsive. Even if they can't fix it, like they follow up with me, right? They do all the things I wish they would do. And that's a great experience for everybody. You know, in marketing in the late aughts, early, early tens, um, where there is friction, there is opportunity. Money management, like a lot of things in my life, currently sits on a notes app as a thing I should be doing, but I'm not currently doing. Managing your money and accessing expert advice shouldn't be hard, and that's why It's No Fluke is proud to partner with Wave. Wave offers an easy-to-use suite of money management tools for creators in one place, streamlining your bookkeeping and saving you major time. Plus, when you create a free Wave account, you'll get a free personal 20-minute session with one of Wave's bookkeeping coaches, normally priced at $99. It's not a sales call. You can ask any questions you have about bookkeeping and get expert advice. The goal is to help you feel confident and in control of your finances. Spots are limited. Don't wait. Visit waveapps.com slash nofluke to claim your free coaching session. That's W-A-V-E-A-P-P-S dot com slash N-O-F-L-U-K-E. That's waveapps.com slash nofluke. Okay, Tiffany, when there are issues, when there are problems, when there are inefficiencies, when there are dissatisfied people, that also does create opportunity. And this isn't just because I'm a perpetual optimist. Although I will say, before I ask this very short question, I will give this little brief. Um, when you were giving that previous example of dissatisfaction, um, I am an incredibly optimistic extrovert. And even I was like, mm, I can probably do that about six times before I'm going to lose it. But um, where do you see the opportunities then? And you gave, a, you gave the call center example, but where do you see the biggest opportunities and how, how this friction can be fixed? First, you have to know where the friction lies. Mm. You know, when I used to advise uh, customers when I was at Gartner and people would ask me, that's a similar question, Jeff, in some way, right? It was kind of generally the same yeah. thing. I would just immediately answer like, boom, like here's what I think you should do. And over time I learned that that was, I was doing a disservice actually that the answer back I should have given and is the one now I give and have given probably over the last decade is I don't know the answer to that question. What do your employees say about these five things, the tech they use, the processes to support their work, their career development opportunities, their collaborative, you know, I, and, uh, and then what do your customers say? What ends up happening pretty obviously is they'll answer the customer ones pretty quick. Mm -hmm. but they won't be as detailed about the employee ones. And they'll be like, well, our latest survey told us whatever. And I'll be like, great. When was the survey? Oh, it was, I don't know, four five, six months ago. And I'll be like, okay, don't care. Backward looking like, right. Mm -hmm. And, and, or I'll say, okay, great. It was five or six months ago. What were the top three things? They don't always know. But if I said, what are the top three pain points on the customer side? A, B, C. What are the top three pain points on the employee side? They may guess, you know, because it might just be, you know, something, oh, they want to work from home. They want more pay. Like, you know, let's go to the obvious ones that are not maybe incorrect, but not accurate based on what I'm trying to get out of them. Right. Then, They're the, and, of course, but. Yeah, of course, but. Right. And so then I'll say, all right, what did you do? If those were the three, what did you do to, to remediate that? If it was they want to work virtually, like if you think that that's one of the biggest friction points, what is your hybrid work? What is your, what's your plan? Like, what's your mandate? 
Is it everyone comes back to the office? No one comes back? Like That's a cop-out. Like, is it by team? Is it flex? Three days a week? When you're in the middle of a project, it's one month a quarter? Like, what is it? Like, what is your work-from-home policy? Like, And what's happened for it? Can they show me that they captured the data and then actioned it? Even if it was, we heard this and we chose not to do it. Then I asked them, great, how did you communicate that you were not going to do it and why? And so I just start asking questions and very quickly, executives that are paying attention and not getting defensive, which is always difficult to navigate, they start to notice how much more they know about customer than they do employee. And it kind of gets the horse to the water. Now it's okay. Now what? Right. Like now, now that we've uncovered that you are more focused on customer than employee, even though employees are really important to you, et cetera, how do I get you to drink? Right. What are the things we need to do? And then that's where I say, you need to find out what are those top things in your employee base and then decide, do they have impact on CX? Are they outside of the customer? And if they're outside the customer, it could be an HR thing. So HR, go, go work on that. If it is a customer-facing issue like the ones we've just been talking about or friction points, now get with IT, get with the call center leaders, right? Get with your CX leads like, and start to journey map a call center's day or journey map a sales rep's day or journey map a marketer's day or your field technician's day, right? Like start to journey map those entire uh, experiences for your employees during those moments that matter and start to work through where the friction is because you're trying to, I mean, how many executives do you hear? My job is to remove obstacles from your job. <laughs> Great. What are the obstacles to my job? I'm, I'm glad that that's what you are, you know, what your mandate is and what you say and what it says in your bio and what it says on your LinkedIn profile and what it says, what you say at the beginning of meetings. But tell me what obstacles exactly you're trying to get out of my way, please. Like, I want to understand what obstacles because the obstacles you think is happening is not what's actually happening which was that 20% of customer facing thinks the technology they're using is not working. And we found from executives, right, that there was a 30% gap between what the executives thought versus what the customer facing employees thought. Hmm. No, fascinating. This is a little divergent, but at the beginning of that, you talked about not giving it an answer immediately and asking more questions. That had to be a, be a conscious choice in your career. Um, Tell me a little bit more about when you made that shift and the courage to, because I think early on or at any point in somebody's career, it's tough to not come in with an answer. Well, especially in the role I had, right? I was a research analyst. I was an advisor. Mm -hmm. I was a consultant. It's kind of like what we get paid to do is have an opinion. Yeah. And it's not that I didn't have an opinion. It was that I started to notice that there was different types of leaders that were very responsive to the, here's the three things I do. And Mm. there was a group of leaders that were not responsive to, here are the three things that I do, that I would suggest you do. So some of it was, don't tell me, right? Show me and let me kind of come along on the journey. When I started to realize that sort of difference, like I've heard people say, you know, like, ask better questions than listen. And, you know, all true, all true, but we're all on our own journeys, right? I had to sort of get there on my own. Um, That when I started working with companies that I did the latter, right? Versus the former of tell them and instead Mm -hmm. tell them in an indirect way, which is kind of how I write my books. Like I just tell the story 
come to the conclusions on your own. I'm not going to tell you what you should do. I'm going to give you options and what you can do and the benefits, pros and cons of those options. And where I've seen companies deploy those ideas or options and what's worked and not worked. And if you can see yourself in any of that, fantastic, was a win, right? Um, but what I noticed with the executives that I started down the path of asking, they were far more engaged in the process. Mm. If they were more junior, they liked you to tell them because they didn't actually know. And so, right, right the more senior they had the experts mindset where I know this, I've done it. I've done it a hundred times, did it in my last four jobs. Like you're not telling me anything new. Mm -hmm. I needed beginner's minds and the way to try to plant the seed for a beginner's mind is start to ask questions where they themselves go, huh, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm not going to admit I don't know the answer to that, but I'm going to jot down that question. And the next time we get together, right, I'm going to come back with it. And then they'll say something like, you know, I thought about that question. And I went back to my team and I got this answer. It was not what I expected. So based on that, I want to do this. And in my head, I'm like, check. Yeah. I couldn't have asked for a better outcome, right? Because if I had just started with the, I think you should do this, you get the expert's mindset shows up, arms cross, you know, no interest in hearing anything further I had to say. No, absolutely. I mean, you basically, you start to learn, you adapt to the room, but that's very key in who you're talking to, right? And I'm sure you yes. probably make that calculus still every day. Yes. And I would say... It took me probably, you know, a handful of months to get as good a good of it as I do in person via Zoom during the pandemic. Mm, yeah. Right. So reading a room and a small, you know, postage stamp size screen um, is really difficult because you're trying to read six or eight executives simultaneously. It's much easier in a room, right? Because very quickly you can see four people at the same time. Um, and you don't yeah. see, you don't see their hands. You don't see, you kind of just see, you know, from sort of their chest up. And so you're missing hand movements, you're missing things, little cues. So it's a lot more difficult to do what we're talking about now remotely, but it goes also back to leaders. It's more difficult to get your people engaged and inspired and communicate and, you know, share, uh, and do things in an empathetic way virtually. You know, so it is a different muscle and different skill that you have to work on if you're so used to doing everything face-to-face, -face, because there's a lot of things you miss um, by not being able to see someone um, in real life. Yeah. I mean, we're all getting better at it in real time. I mean, even with this podcast recording, it's it's audio for everyone, but we're doing this via video just because it's good to you know see facial expressions, excitement level, where, you know, where you're, you know, if I see that you're perking up about something, I want to let you take that and ride with that for five minutes, right? Things that you don't necessarily get if you're doing audio. Um, for people who listen to this podcast, there's probably a lot of creators. We're the shorty awards. The, the idea I want to kind of unpack briefly is in your career, there's a balance between, you know, if you're working for a place, whether you're doing your own thing or you're working for a place, the idea that you create value inside the company and outside of the company, right? What, what do you find as the value in, in writing books in giving speeches and doing things that are outside, but still connected? Um, kind of how do you view that space of being, being a creator, uh, being someone who produces content, but also being inside of a company?
uh, I, I'll tell you this. Creativity is one of those things. I, interestingly enough, my sort of closest friend group, everybody is a creative. Like, yeah. It's an artist, interior designer, <laughs> painter. You know, it's very interesting that I'm surrounded by creative and I, and I don't have any of that talent whatsoever. <laughs> like I'm, I'm creative in different ways, but I am not creative like in the arts or in music or things like that. Sure. But I will say that when I'm participated in teams or led teams, like inspiring that creativity requires the leaders to be very intentional about that whole psychological safety. Like if I'm going to be creative and something is going to be a bad idea or going to fail, I don't want to not do it because I'm worried that I'll be ridiculed or mocked or fired or laughed at, or that's not what they want. So you don't have to be creative in the arts to just be creative about a process fixing, you know, like the return process as a customer service agent. If I'm in a, I know a better way. If I went to my manager and I said, I think this will fix and carve 10 minutes off. That's creativity, right? That's being mm -hmm. willing to look for, at a problem and creatively come up with a solution. Now I'm going to bring it to my manager and my manager is going to go, yeah, no, like it's not a responsibility. Like it's above my pay grade. I'm not going to do it. Like, what you've just done there is you've hurt the confidence of the person who came to you with that idea. Absolutely. It is, it is a creative muscle that has to be exercised. It is a confidence muscle that has to be exercised. So if I come to you, Jeff, and I say, I have this idea and you go, Hey, that's a good idea. Let me see what I can do with this. I go, Oh, okay. You know, it's like going to the gym, <laughs> right? The first time you go to a gym and you pick up a 10 pound dumbbell and you do some bicep curls the next day, trust me, you're going to be sore. And so yeah. it's the same thing if you're going to show up with this sort of idea muscle, right? Creativity muscle. And then as you keep doing, it, it's less sore. And then all of a sudden you can pick up a 25 pound dumbbell and a 30 pound dumbbell, and then your confidence continues to build. So it's up to leaders to create a safe space for that confidence to blossom. And it doesn't always have to be right, right? It's like, you have to learn how to learn in the loss, right? And then win and keep going, and then you're going to lose again. And so I feel like that goes back to where we started this conversation on the culture of the people and what are the things that leaders can do to foster that creativity, reward it for both its wins and losses. Like your next team meeting, ask everybody around the room to say what they did that didn't work this week. Everyone share what they didn't work. Instead of, well, you know, tell me all the great stuff that's happening in the team. No, let's talk about all the stuff that didn't work. And not because you're trying to shame somebody, but because, oh, yeah. I was going to do that. So how did you fix it? Now, that all of a sudden creates this culture of innovation, creativity, safety, et cetera. And safety is important. Like, hopefully that culture is willing to share. Yes. I think that's, that's incredibly important, right? That that's, that's the building block of being able to build that out is like, if it's a safe enough space for people to want to talk about things, that's good. Um, when you're talking about that, I, I couldn't help but think about how many times I was overly encouraged, uh, asked to attempt ridiculous things, um, told to Google how to blow something up on a bridge with non-dairy creamer. Um, so all these random things, that I, or I was overly encouraged to do. So I'm probably living the 95th percentile version of my life because there were enough people who said, sure, yeah, let's look into that. Let's unpack that. Or in this case, let's give Jeff a podcast, see what happens. But 
what um what do you give the advice to people when i mean other than finding a new job but when you are discouraged with the culture if you aren't being heard then what is the counterpoint to that it depends how far down the road of that unhappiness you are yeah because if you're way down that road then you're already into quiet quitting right it's i come here i do what i have to do i go home i come back the next day i do it again it is a paycheck it is not a career it is not inspiring it does not bring you joy it is a i have to do it and considering mm -hmm. like 9000 hours of your life literally is spent at a job um that is a shame mm -hmm. that a third of your life you will be unhappy like by choice so it isn't that if you're really far down that path then i would suggest you should leave if you're at the beginning of this unhappiness then that's where hopefully the culture will stand up and rise up and get you back on track. But then you have to go to your manager and say, look, I'm sort of like losing my, you know, joy. I'm losing my interest. I'm losing my willingness and my satisfaction. And I really enjoy where I work. Maybe I should be looking for another role in the company because I want to stay here. Or maybe we can pick something I can start to invest in from a learning perspective. So you know, maybe six months from now, I can move on to a different role or, you know, I, I want to be a manager. So can I get plugged into the management development program or whatever it is, right? You have to also ask. And mm -hmm. that is that, you know, now we can open another buzzword of the imposter syndrome, right? You have to feel confident enough to ask for it and not feel like you're not yes. worthy of whatever it is. Mm. And so this is a lot of self work. Um, but if you don't invest in yourself and you don't stand up for yourself and you don't ask for what you want, no one else is going to do it for you. So it just depends how quickly you want to raise the flag when you start to feel like you're getting dissatisfied. You may say, ah, I'm just in a funk. Like, let me give it a quarter and see if, you know, I come around the other side. And if you realize, oh, it wasn't a funk, I'm really not happy then that's where you need to go to your manager and start raising the flag. And if you feel like you can't do that, then I would go anyway. Yeah. And for aspiring content creators or creators in general who are at an organization right now, right? And that might be an idea for how they create value, right? How they get more done in the workplace. Um, I mean, that's not universal, but there are a lot of cases in which people create content outside of the workplace, get more pull, more sway, more opportunities in the workplace because it's being seen out there. And there's there's some value in that. How do you guide somebody to go down that path if they're a little reticent and they don't want to hit send yet to kind of do things outside the org that might get them a little bit more value inside the org, if that makes sense? Well, you know, one of the things that the research showed, not ours, um, but uh, that during that great resignation, it wasn't necessarily just a functional shift where people were going from one corporate environment to another corporate environment. A yeah. good major a good percentage of it, it wasn't the majority, but a good percentage of it was I left corporate to stand up my own business. Like I've been mm -hmm. waiting for the right time to do it. Might as well do it now. I just got let off from work, right? I'm going to collect unemployment. There's a little bit more because we're in the middle of a pandemic that the government was doing. I have a little bit of a cushion. Let, let me give it a six month ramp. Let me try to start my own content creation business or become my own thought leader or stand up my own podcast, whatever it might've been. Um, and so we saw a lot of that, which I think is fantastic. Uh, and then sometimes people tried it. It didn't work. They bounced back, right? Now they're either going back to their old job or to their old company, or they've found somewhere else because now they have new skills. 
But even if you just look at chat GPT or, you know, just GPT in general, uh, mm -hmm. look at all these people that are like spending weekends and after hours to understand how to use it. What are the best prompts, how to get the most out of it. And then creating these little niches of there isn't a lot of people who are really good at it. If you're going to get really good at it, make that investment. You can go where you want to go and do what you want to do. So, you know, there is value in doing it. I, but I will say one kind of caveat asterisk here is I'm not a fan of doing it during the time you should be working at the job you're working at. Like, I, True. I don't, I don't think that that's fair either. Like, don't just go, well, I'm working three jobs and everyone thinks I'm working for each one of them full time. Like, I don't agree with that. You know, I think that trust needs to be there on both sides from the employer and the employee. Um, and, but if there's ways to do it after hours and on weekends, I'm, I'm all for it. Yeah. And funny, full circle, you alluded to this earlier when it was, it takes 12 people to start a business, right? Things are much easier. Things are easier to start a business. Things are easier for a consumer. And we've definitely talked about how it's a little bit tougher for an employee. What is your general, like most general takeaway? I guess it's a two-part question. What's your most general takeaway doing the research for experience mindset? Um, and again, maybe what's the one thing minus culture that surprised you the most? I think, um, not I think, what surprised me the most was when I shared it and I shared the research and I shared the findings, I heard the following three things. One, if it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? And I was like, mm. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Right? So what surprised me most was, it's so obvious, why isn't everyone doing it? And I was surprised that everyone wasn't doing it. You know what I'm saying? Like I was, I thought, oh, well, yeah. you know, we're going to uncover the, the, the greatest sort of levers with an employee that have the greatest impact on customer. And if you do that right, you get this kind of exponential growth. It becomes this flywheel of you do E right, you C gets better, you get those two things, you get greater growth rates. Like intuitively, it's obvious. And by the way, I'm not the first to say it by any long stretch. However, we are one of the first to prove causation and a direct connection between what parts of employee experience actually have impact on customer experience and actually has impact on growth. So the second thing I heard after the, if it's so obvious is, okay, well, what's the return on investment? So then they get into those habits. Yeah. Of, I won't make the investment, right? Unless I can see the return. Similar, like I know mm -hmm. if I spend a dollar, the CAC is this. And if I spend $2 here, I get this back and the lifetime value goes up and net promoter does it. But, you know, they can rattle off all the stuff that right drives greater revenue or profitability or reduces costs. But on the employee Need it to be side, linear, right? Yeah. But on the employee side, they're kind of like, well, outside of attrition and the cost to hire and lose talent, what, uh, what's the ROI? Um, yeah. And then the third thing I heard, um, which wasn't necessarily surprising, it was more of a, oh, yeah, this will be a problem. And it was, who owns it? <laughs> who owns it? So it was about almost a land grab conversation. Oh, I can take that over and then I can actually own this part of IT and own this part of customer experience and own this part. Oh, right. The whole, if no one owns it, I want to own it. And if I own it, then I get budget and resources, more sphere of influence, a bigger title, blah, 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 blah versus, which is why I was very intentional in saying the experience mindset, because it was not about a new role. It was not about yeah. necessarily ROI. It was, although very important. 
Um, I don't want you to think that I'm saying return on investment doesn't matter. It does. It was really about making sure that the corporate cultural mindset and operating philosophy was one which was much more intentionally balanced between the customer effort, the employee effort, the combined experience, and growth. It took me a while in this conversation, but the epiphany just happened where, oh yeah, that's a land grab. <laughs> that's a possible minefield of a land grab of people wanting to own that or not wanting to own that, depending on the organization, right? Um, now that part is that part is fascinating. Um, before we close, uh, Tiffany, what is the worst piece of career advice you were ever given? Business isn't for me. <laughs> was there a follow-up to that or was it just business wasn't for you? It was my college counselor. My undergrad was oh, business no. administration. And she's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know if business is really for you. You might want to pick another undergraduate degree. Yeah. Seemed, so, seemed to work out okay. Yeah, seemed to work out okay. But I didn't go on to get my MBA. You know, I just, and I, I had to pick another undergrad. Did I, you know, did I think business was really for me? I, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast, but you know, here, here's what I would say is that my, I'm a listen visual learner, not a read learner. And so it just wasn't interesting. It wasn't compelling. I had kind of already been working in business very early. It had a really amazing mentor who was one of the very first female presidents of, of YPO. Um, so I had someone I could see, you know, that was a woman running a business, yeah. a million dollar business. And I was working for them. That was a family friend and kind of everything I learned about business. I pretty much learned from her. And then I went to college and, you know, they were trying to teach me business. And I'm like, that's not really, that's not really how, that, it's not really how supply chain works. Mm. Like, like, you know, anyway. So, you know, whenever they send me, you know, the uh, obligatory alumni donate to the alumni association, I'm like, I earn my money from business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you know. No, I mean, I have a marketing. Oh, no, I have a marketing degree, right? And I remember in, and that's the half-life of things that change, right? You have to be adaptable. I've adapted many times. I remember having a marketing degree and first year, freshman year, 2003, and we're talking about Krispy Kreme's got to grow like 30,000 more stores so they compete with Starbucks. I'm like, those are drastically different things. Like that's, those are drastically different businesses. You were telling me the wrong thing. I remember I shot out something about I think this is like oh four, uh, and my marketing teacher thought I was the dumbest person alive because I was like, "Well, you know, content's just going to go into a bunch of silos with social, and just everybody's going to listen to whatever they want to hear, and from like the six people they want to hear it from." And they're like, "No, no, 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 no. They're they're still going to read newspapers." It's like, "Okay, sure, cool." <laughs> There's all kinds of like weird bad advice there, but I think generally you get more from and don't get me wrong college is great you get more from the people around you the experiences you have the people um that you encounter down the way uh advisors mentors um so to close what is your best piece of advice you can give people in general blank question trust the process it's kind of a oh really that's what you had to say but i have no patience <laughs> so i did not <laughs> trust the process a lot of times. And in hindsight, looking back, it, it works out eventually. Look, I was a Loqua's beta client. I was constant contacts beta client. Mm -hmm. 
I was working in this world in 2000 when people still wanted to buy yellow page ads versus doing something online. I, like you, Jeff, have seen it from a very long lens. But if I had given up like, oh, yeah, they might be right, or I'd really tried to push, we were just really early. And so you either have to hang on and be like, eventually, at some point on the other side of this, right, these two things will, will match. What I think might happen with some you know, adjustments, because we're not always right, and what the market yeah. is willing for. So I, I'd say trusting the process. If you believe something to be true, you either have to manifest for it to happen, or you have to trust the process that along the way, eventually, it's going to get close to what you anticipate will happen. And then that's where you have to find a job, a role, a company, your own startup, where it will foster that journey for you in a way that's more enjoyable. No, that's a really good way of defining like the, the balance between pivot and belief, right? Yeah. Because sometimes we need to pivot and there are some times where we just need to believe that we can kind of stick through that and that will be there. Um, Tiffany, please shamelessly plug anything and everything you have. Oh, you know, I, I appreciate, you know, the opportunity to, to be on the podcast today. The new book is called The Experience Mindset. Pick it up wherever you buy books. It's an audible Kindle, a hard copy. Uh, you could follow me on social media. I'm pretty active on uh, LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram. And I always love to hear feedback. You know, if you're working for a company where you think they're doing it really well or not doing it really well, you know, drop me a note. I always love to hear stories, um, you know, that either validate um, or dispel what it is I'm talking about, because this is all about learning. I'm not right. This is a journey for that I will be on for a minute. So I, I'm always open to new opinions. No, I appreciate that. I think the best advice comes from people who are ready to admit they're still learning in the process too, right? That you're not the expert. There was one specific point where you said thinker, not expert. Yes. And I, I definitely felt that. And I think that was important. All Tiffany, right, well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Appreciate it. And after this conversation, you see just how related consumers, employees, processes, and organizations are. Fixing employee experience won't happen overnight, but there's plenty of research and a roadmap to do so. There's so much you can learn from Tiffany Bova. This is just a small sample size. Thanks to her for making the time. Thank you for listening. And thanks to our sponsor, Wave. It's No Fluke is an original podcast from the Shorty Awards. It's hosted by me. Jeff Barrett, produced by Jun Mianzun, cover and episode art by Chelsea Shizano. No AI is still involved in the making of this show. If you like this show, please leave a five-star review, share and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you leave a really funny five-star review, making fun of me, your host, I'll read it at the end of a future episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any feedback or guest recommendations, send an email to info at shortyawards.com or DM Shorty Awards on Instagram.